So a random reading recommendation, if you've got a second of free time. Go to the New York Times website and check out Kurt Streeter's column, headlined, Why Do I Have to Work Twice as Hard Just to Get Noticed? It's about Sylvia Fowles, the retiring WNBA great who, despite her legendary status, gains little notice. Wrote Streeter, Fowles is just as good a player as Bird. Better, say many experts. Yet outside the respect earned from her peers and followers of women's basketball, she has operated in the shadows. Fowles told me last week that she had to learn not to let the lack of fame bother her. I've had to get to that space of not caring, she said, noting it took her about half of her career to come to terms with being as overlooked as a player of her caliber can be. Fowles said she has never been featured on national magazine covers or been the focus of ad campaigns from large-scale companies. She can walk through major airports unrecognized, other than the gawking looks from strangers marveling at a stunning six-foot-six woman strolling through the concourse. Streeter is always one of the best, and this piece is no exception. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Ron Shelton, the famed writer and director of such films as Bull Durham, White Men Can't Jump, and Cobb, and the author of a new book, The Church of Baseball, The Making of Bull Durham, Home Runs, Bad Calls, Crazy Fights, Big Swings, and a Hit. This is episode number 272. Let's Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right. So, uh, Ron, before I get into the lame, you know, book questions, I just want to say 1971 Rochester, Rochester Red Wings, 86 and 54. You remember the team. I was looking over the roster. It's an insane collection of talent, considering it was a minor league ball club, including Don Baller, including Johnny Oates, Joe Atabelli, your manager. Mike Ferraro is on that team. Bobby Gritch was on that team. Ray Miller's on that team. Can we make the argument the best minor league baseball team of all time? Or is that, is that a stretch? Yeah. Well, baseball in America has said it's one of the 10 best. As Dizzy Dean said when he asked if he was the best, he says, I don't know, but I'm among them. It was a team that was like 500 at the break and then played like 900 ball for the rest. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a heck of a team. It was great to be on it. I was a starting second base at the beginning of the year. I, I got hurt. I actually got an infection. I went on the DL and then I came back and kind of uh, was more platoon the rest of the year. But I was like, I made great friends on that team. Nobody could break in with the Orioles. The Orioles were the best team in baseball for 20 years. Yeah. And we were winning minor league championships too. So they had the best organization. Could a person who never played minor league baseball, but read a lot about it and studied about it and interviewed people about it, have written Bull Durham. Did it take that experience for you to be able to actually make this? It, it, you have to live it to, to be able to get the details right and the feel of it right. Living in hotels, watching soap operas, you know, all of that. When I was a story editor breaking into the movie business, I had to read 10 scripts a week. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the book somewhere. And this script was so good by a guy nobody ever heard of called Oliver Stone. It was called Platoon. <laughs> And you just knew that the guy was in the trenches about to get killed that wrote that. I mean, you can't fake that, you know. That's why I couldn't write a book about Silicon Valley. I don't know anything about it. Right. There's a lot of things I can't write about, you know. A bunch of lawyers, I'd be bad at that. But if it's sort of working class stuff in sports, that's where I live. So you write a book, The Church of Baseball, The Making of Bull Durham, Home Runs, Bad Calls, Crazy Fights, Big Swings, and a Hit. 
And this movie came out a long time ago. It came out in 1988. Does someone come to you and say, you really need to write a book about this? And is your reaction, fuck, that was 30 years ago? I don't know. I was reluctant to do it because it was, you know, why? there's something about writing a movie you made 35 years ago that's like trying to relive the past. And I wasn't interested in that. I've got scripts out there. I've got projects in development. I'm still trying to get movies and TV shows in production. But and the introduction tells a funny story of when I went down to the, the Durham for a celebration. My friends who are writers, I would always tell stories. I'm a very, you know, I sit around with a drink and everybody say, tell me, hey, you got to write that. I said, I don't want to write a book. I'm not a book writer. I'm a screenwriter. And I wrote a, a piece about the book just for the hell of it. And some literary agent got it. It's a long, complicated story. But he said, you want to write a book? I can, there's a book here. And I said, you're kidding. And uh, it was the chapter called Kill Your Darlings about the scene that everybody's favorite scene in the movie and why we cut it out. He said, I said, what do I do? He said, write an introduction and chapter one. And I did. And we had six publishers wanted it. And I did Zoom interviews because it was pandemic. And I picked a great editor and a great, uh, you know, pub- publishing house. And it was fairly effortless. Did you find the actual transition from screenwriting to just writing a book? Are you about to tell me it's the easiest thing you ever did? And, and uh, writing books is just a piece of cake compared to screenplays. I'm, I'm saying writing this book was a piece of cake, but <laughs> the next one might be impossible. I don't even know what it would be. I don't know. Everybody said, what's your next book? The editors, the publishers. I don't have another book in me. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. But I wrote three screenplays while I wrote this book. So I would work on the screenplays for three weeks. And some of those are, are, are bloody because I'm, I'm turning them into people I don't respect in some cases. And some, some of them are just for me. I spec the ones that I, I have to protect. And every third, fourth week, I'd spend a week on the book. And I did that for 12 months and I had a book. So in a certain way, the week every month on this book was my, for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so in that regard, it was an easy transition, but I'm not sure it would be easy the second time out. Reading your book, the thing I came away with was the pure misery of making a movie. Studio heads getting involved and some person who has no business sticking his nose and saying, well, this scene doesn't work. There's scenes where we need Susan Sarandon's not going to work. Kevin Costner's not going to work. When you're doing it, is it actually fun making the movie itself? Because it seems kind of like hell. This one was hell. This was a horrible, horrible experience. And that and that this joy and exuberance and celebration comes out on screen is the miracle. Uh, I couldn't watch the movie for 10 years after it was made because it, it, it brought back these memories of the, of the battles. Uh, other movies I've made have been fun and joyful. White Man Can't Jump and Ten Cup, I had a blast. But this one was, this one was sheer hell. Wait, what was your lowest moment? What's the worst moment? I got word that they... They hated Tim Robbins. They wanted to replace him with Anthony Michael Hall two weeks into shooting. They said, Susan looks terrible. She looks great. They were going to fire me, but I knew they couldn't get away with that because Costner and Sarandon would have defended me. We were on schedule, and they said the movie is not funny, it's not sexy, and it's not romantic. All of the, It's now on the top list in all three categories of everybody. And they fired the 
director of photography who'd done all that glorious footage of Susan in the middle of a, of a they just walked, a, a producer came out and just fired him right in the middle of the shooting day. That, that was about as low as I go, because if I walked off, I'd never work again. So I had to rally the troops. And this poor guy who shot movies for Spielberg had been sacrificed. And, and at that point, I said, okay, it's a war. The rest, I'm going to get to the finish one shot at a time. Fuck you to everybody. Uh, but I, the crew and the cast was so behind me at that point because they knew this was all unfair and stupid that the movie was working. But at least I had that. I had the cast and crew just like going to war with me. But it never stopped. All the way through the editing, the studio hated it. Only when it came out and the reviews were through the roof and people went to see it that they suddenly decided they had something. As all these people are firing at you and firing at the movie, do you know you have a good movie or is there a part of you where doubt creeps in at all? I honestly believe we had a good movie. I couldn't believe it was like you're, you know, you cannot have a, I'm always telling my friends who are frustrated in a dis discussion with, with a, 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 their significant other or usually a business partner or their boss. You cannot have a rational conversation with an irrational person. It doesn't work. And that's what this was, except it wasn't a conversation. It was a fight. And, I just kept saying, each scene I'm shooting is working. You know, they tried to cut the meaning of the mound out as you read the book. What? I mean, it was just staggering. So all I could do was show up every day, pissed off. And when you see shots of me on the set, man, I'm, I look like George Patton. Like, I'm, there's never a smile. There's never a laugh. It's just, God damn it, this is war. And all I could do is shoot each scene, each line, each camera angle and make sure it was as good as I knew how to get it. It's actually remarkable. This is a compliment, I swear. The level of misery that comes out of this book. Like you think, oh, Bodrum, this is going to be the most joyful. It's going to be a glorious story. They're going to be sagas of Kevin Costner and Ron Shelton hanging out. And it's like, this is awful. This is awful. These people are miserable. It's a remarkable insight into what it's really like. Well, you've been you've been through it now with winning time. I mean, at least from some roles, you, you know the battles. I mean, I know there's been battles on that because I've read about some of them. And anytime you read about them, you know there's 50 battles you don't hear, you'll never hear about. So, right. Wait, but let me ask you this. Siri, again, I'm a novice. All right, this is my first experience. My my dipping my toe. All right, the show's coming out, and they have the big premiere. HBO pays shitloads of money for this big premiere party, and all the stars are there. And it's like one of the great nights of my life. It's like this glowing, beautiful night where everyone's smoking cigars and there's this person, there's that person. And you get the romantic, you get the romanticism of it all. Like you totally get the romanticism. Does that still exist for you? And did it exist at the time? Like, was that a thing? First of all, they didn't even have a premiere for Boulder. Okay. They did. There was no premiere. So that was fine with me. I don't like premieres because it's a dishonest crowd. Uh, you have a whole lot of people rooting for the movie and a whole lot of people rooting against the movie because that's Hollywood. And, um, and and you're on the red carpet and you, you answer stupid questions, you know, from Access Hollywood. What's it like to work with Kevin Costner? I mean, what are you going to say? Yeah. You have, in, in that case, that would be great. But even if it wasn't great, you'd say it was great. Uh, so it's all bullshit and um, unpleasant evenings and, so I loathed them. So I was kind of happy when they didn't have a 
premiere. They didn't believe it enough. Now, I will say, since that time, they had a big thing for it and at, at the Cannes Festival to celebrate Mike Metavoy's career. And uh, so it, it's, it's so grown, its life has expanded in a way that's finally making up for all the misery. Wait, I actually really mean this. If, um, if making a movie can be kind of hellish and the joy of the aftermath isn't so like you see through the bullshit, the stupid access Hollywood questions and the backstabbing and, oh, I love your work, but you know they're lying to you. What is the joy of it for you? Well, I love telling stories and it isn't always as miserable as Bulldorm. I've had one worse experience. I won't talk about it, but because uh, I, it, it, I, get, I get my stomach in knots, but Mostly the battles aren't this bad there. Um, and mostly the people financing it want to pull in the same direction as you. They just don't know how. Uh, and, and when it works, it's pretty ecstatic. Uh, when you make a movie that really works and sings and you play it for an audience that doesn't know you or care, or have any investment, and they laugh and cheer or moved or whatever, frightened. Um, that's why it's worth it. Does it do something for you the first time you see the movie on a big screen? The two most nervous times for a director are when he first shows it to the studio or whoever's paying for it, because it's not done. It's only a 10 week edit and, and you have a lot more editing to do. And they tend to watch it alone in a room. There's even a story like this in the book. They don't watch it with an audience. So what kind of experience are you getting? You know, nobody's going to laugh. Nobody, you know, laughter's, contagious right uh and so are yawns unfortunately so uh and the, and the other frightening time is when you screen it with the studio for an audience a test audience they come in and and after the screening they're all given cards and pen, pencils to fill out their scores so they rate your movie and then those numbers that they rated certain percentages you're supposed to hit of excellent very good fair all that that tells the studio how much they're going to invest in marketing. So they, they give way too much credence to the numbers, not to what they just experienced in the room. And Bull Durham, there's a whole chapter in this. We never got good numbers. And the audiences laughed and cheered. And to this day, nobody can figure out why we didn't score better. Yeah. So, so when it opened huge, it was at last justification for all the work and all the battles because there had been no – rewards emotionally up until opening day and people call me say critics love it the audience loves it well it's about friggin' time you know somebody liked it but those are the two terribles the studio screening and the first cold-blooded audience screen are you able to distance yourself from the opinions of others and just form your own opinion and not be affected by an audience's take yes but you like you i need the reviews you know, I don't make Stallone movies. I have to have the reviews or nobody goes. So uh, I, 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 and I don't read a lot of them. I just know they're going good, they're bad, they're mixed. You know, I'll read a couple and go, okay. I have a higher of opinion of a couple of my movies than some of the critics. And I'm more critical of a couple of movies than some of the critics are praiseworthy. But I, I live on the reviews. That's just the honest truth. Directors don't want to admit that, but I have to have the public books are the same way. I mean, yep. you need a feeding frenzy. We're getting it on my book, which a little bit like the movie is, wow, people love this book. And when I read the book, because I've just done two readings at book signings, 
All I say is, I, I'd like to rewrite that paragraph. Oh, that's the wrong opening. I could have trimmed that. So, uh, and I keep thinking of things like, why didn't I put that in the book? Well, here's another story that would have fit that, you know. So I, I have to just not look in the rearview mirror in that way. So you have a movie, it comes out. Maybe at some point you're watching it. You've gone through all the screenings, but it's finally out. You're watching Bull Durham, or you're watching Cobb, or you're watching whatever, Bad Boys, you know, whatever. Are you not watching it and seeing all the little warts? No, I see them every time. I you want do. to redo it every time. I want to edit, reshoot, rewrite, recast. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's I, it takes years and years and years to be able to relax with it or let go a little bit. If you're sitting at home and you're flipping the channels and you see Bull Durham on, it's halfway through. Do you stop and watch it or do you just keep rolling? Well, it's funny because, like you say, that's a movie that I, you can come in any place if you know the movie. And I watch it to try to figure out why it works magically. And the book talks a lot about the writing, that I didn't have an outline. And I'm a big believer in three acts. And I get to the end and realize I don't have a third act. I mean, that's the big real. I, I violated all my rules of structural screenwriting. And I was unaware of it until I finished the script. I'm always trying to figure out why the thing works. It's because there are character revelations, and the story ones are very simple. Tim Cup is, is easy to watch, too. People always say, I turned it on 40 minutes in, I couldn't turn it off. So if a movie's structured well, they can grab you. White Men Can Jump works like that. There are other people's movies that I, I will watch from any point on. Just It's like reading a good book. Wow, that chapter led to that chapter. I didn't see that coming. That's great, you know. But I, yeah, I, I'm very self-critical, but I... Learn not to beat myself up over it. I've also learned not to watch my own stuff too much. Wait, this may be a really, really dumb question, but this has come up in my own little brief screenwriting career. Why does it need to be three acts? First of all, the three acts can look like something else. Some, there's a seven act structure. No, I mean, that's where the first act is really two acts and the second act is three acts and the third act is two acts. So, so the build is slower or more gradual. It doesn't have to be anything if it works. Bull Durham proves that, okay? Um, I think that there's audiences get a little antsy after two hours. <laughs> and today, everybody's ADD anyway, so you got to start it early. You can't build slowly anymore. You have to have incident at the top that hooks people. And my whole theory, and it's in the book, is you need to keep raising the stakes to hold on to an audience and to earn their trust. So... To raise it at the end of Act One and then raise it again at the end of Act Two is a, it's not a formula, but it's a structure that, that works. I mean, it worked for Shakespeare. You know, I mean, it, it's worked forever. Storytelling. Uh, now, you can violate those rules great. There's movies I like that I can't figure out how they fit that model, but it does deliver, there's something satisfying about three, three acts. The audience doesn't have to be aware there's three acts. But there's a point at which it's time to stop building and to start racing to the conclusion. And I always feel if you don't have, if you're struggling with Act 3, the problem's in Act 2. And, and if you're struggling with Act 2, the problem's in Act 1. Yeah. So when you build it right, it, it keeps going. It just, and, and when you don't, you have to go back and rebuild it. I, 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 I spend more time trying to figure out what's the setup. When I write, it's actually fun. I, my screensaver says, write fast, don't think. Because I've already done the thinking. I've already got the beats in the right place. I don't outline. I don't like to outline. I want to know, if, if I'm running across a river, and that's the writing, I want to have 
four stones in place that I know I can dance across. And uh, we're writing, I'm writing with my buddy who I did Tin Cup right now, a movie. And I, we optioned the book. It's been, out for, it's been around for 40 years. Nobody cares about it, but I do. Called It's Richard Ben Kramer, the great sports writers. Uh, oh. Getting out. What do you think of Ted Williams now? Now, this, uh, it's Richard Ben Kramer going down to the Keys to write an article about Ted Williams, the American male issue of Esquire magazine in 1986. Kramer was one of the great sports writers of all time. Of course. Ted was, of course, Ted, and he's 66 at this point, and he's the fishing king of the Keys, and he's bellowing, and he's, you know, he's terrifying, and he, he doesn't want to talk to sports writers. He hates them all, and Kramer says, I'm going to go, and it's a short book. I mean, you can read it in a half hour, and it's brilliantly insightful, and Kramer comes to think of him as a great man. So they each, and, and Ted ends up respecting him, but it never gets sentimental. And so it's about greatness. And we're working on this. And the whole thing is, there's not enough in the book. So we've read Lee Montville, on, who wrote a great Ted Williams book. Oh, yeah, book. And, great book. Uh, and all the other stuff. And I've talked to the editor. I've talked to people who knew Ted. I've talked to Kramer's friends. And we're having a great time. But how we structured it. What's the opening of it? The opening is a bunch of guys at Esquire magazine sitting around trying to figure out who's on the cover of American Mail magazine, which is really funny today because you'd never get away with it in this world. Yeah. So who are the candidates? That's an interesting scene, you know? Well, yeah. Buzz Aldrin's a candidate. How about Ronald Reagan? No, these are a bunch of liberals. They don't want Reagan. How about, I mean, you look at Stallone? No. I mean, see, so they go through a list of... <laughs> And, some, and I've talked to these guys, Dave Hershey and Lee Eisenberg and the guy, and Dan Oakbrink. They were the guys in the room coming up with yeah. Ted Williams. Ted Williams hadn't been in baseball for 30 years. No, everybody was terrified. He's the dragon in his lair that if you try to approach the lair, he'll burn you to a crisp. So, and of course, Kramer was just got a Pulitzer for being five years in Lebanon in the Middle East War. So it's a, two great characters and it's all the setup. So what are the beats? <laughs> You know, how to get on a boat with Ted Williams. How to, what's the breakup? What brings them back together? You know, and, and Kramer turns a little bit into the Ted Williams at the end when he's back, you know. So, but we didn't write a line until we figured out the basic shape. But we didn't know how to get from A to B or B to C or C to D. We just knew these are the moves that raise the stakes. Then when we start writing, it's just a blast. So no outline whatsoever. No outline. Just wh where do we want to be at the end of Act One? Where do we want to be at the end of Act Two? And what what is what is the revelation? Of, how is Ted different? Well, in our version, and we think there's reason in the book, Ted begins to face his mortality, something he's never done because he's finally got a woman. You know, he lives with this woman Lou, the one woman that he kind of was true and faithful to. And who talked shit back to him. I mean, she wouldn't take any. So they, they were like cursing at each other and had them drinking. And, and so he, she gets, she almost dies. And, and it forces him to, in his own way, very unsentimental to realize he's, he's not going to be around forever. Because keep in mind, he goes, he freezes his head. And, you know, I mean, he ends up trying to, he's still trying to be immortal. So, okay, now we have an idea that we can explore. And Kramer's own journey. So why are we writing that on spec? Because 
what I just told you, I could never tell to a studio executive. They want to see all the beats. And I said, I don't know them. I haven't found them yet. Right. I just know what it's going to, where we're going. I don't know how we're going to get there. So when I want to write something that I like that, I just say, I'll write it for free and I'll get the rights to the book myself. Are you at all thinking though, when you do this, Number one, it's baseball, and that's going to be a hurdle because, you know, you know oh, baseball's dying and blah, blah, blah. Number two, Ted, I could see some, you know, 30-year-old studio guy being like, Ted Williams, I don't even know who that is. Number three, some writer at a magazine that's long dead, blah, blah, blah. We've already had Mad Men. Who cares about this? Like, do you have to consider those things when you dive into a subject? Or are you, at this point in your career, like, fuck it, I'm just doing what I want to do? Uh, I wish I could only do what I want to do, but I, I do – I have to get paychecks too. I got kids in college, but on this one, it's not only the problems you said, it's also a bunch of old white guys, writer, director, producer, Kramer Williams. It's white. It's old white guy time. And that isn't, you know, the mandate of the moment. Yeah. I also know I can give this to Kevin Costner, who might be a great Kevin Williams at 66, because he can be full of it and charge him. And I can give it to, or George Clooney, or I, and I get a lot of great actors to play Kramer and, you know, and you could put together something that they can't deny you, you know, it'll have to get made on a streaming company or something. Right. So that's why I'm going in on my way, my time, my dime, so I can put it together the way I want. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey who is increasingly concerned by the rumors that former Styx guitarist Tommy Shaw will be replacing HM in NCT Dream. It doesn't make sense. Isn't the Styx guy old? Not really. He's 68. Damn. Okay, well, here's an idea. What if we go to royalretros.com, king of the throwback sports merchandise, and order some stuff for HM? That's great. And I can write a short note like, Dear Hagen, you're the best. Please don't leave NCT Dream. I've enclosed an embroidered Peter Rayford San Antonio Gunslinger's jersey and two hats. Love, Casey. It's so crazy, it just might work. Please don't leave Hagen. Wait, this is random. I remember when I, in 1994, I was a young writer at the Nashville Tennessean. And our movie reviewer was a guy named Gene Wyatt. And he said, I know you like sports. There's this movie Cobb coming out. Do you want to see Cobb with me? I'm going to review Cobb. I'll go see Cobb, sure. And I really like Cobb and Gene Wyatt gave it like one star, like bash Cobb. And you got a lot of bashes on Cobb. When you get negative reviews to something you feel really good about, does it cause you a to be just sort of pissed off at people who missed it or B does it cause you ever to reconsider and think, well, maybe that movie didn't convey what I wanted it to convey. I do like the movie a lot. And I think we're trying to go on an area that people stay away from. I would do a few different things to it. Essentially the same movie. Um, but not a lot. Look, that movie really polarized critics, and it was shocking to me because but Warner Brothers believed in the movie. I don't think it was a it was a Christmas release, which they, that's when they put it out. It didn't make any sense, but they thought it would get awards and things. They sent it out. Remember the Unforgiven, the Clint Eastwood movie that sure. was very dark. They didn't know what to do with that either, but they liked it. They sent it out to 10 top critics around the country two months before release saying, let us know. And all the critics came back. We love Unforgiven. And that gave them confidence to go out with it, end up winning an Oscar. And well, they did that to Cobb. 
And I mean, this was the New Yorker. This was, you know, Roger Angel and Pauline Kale. Loved it. Uh, Hal Hitz in the Washington Post, the, the, the big papers out of Boston, the, I mean, uh, Chicago. They, 10 of the top reviewers of the country loved the movie. And so we were confident when we went out. And then all the other people came in and hated the movie. And it was like, and, and if you look it up, it's very polarized and very odd because, I mean, you know, I know Raging Bull is a great movie, but Amada is not a very good guy, not even a very interesting guy. Right. And um, so we never quite, and even the studio, I defend the, uh, never quite figured out why it was so polarizing. I, I, it also, you know, after 40 theaters, they didn't go wide because they couldn't recover from those two reviews. But if, if you look it up, we got some of the toughest critics in the country and nobody else. Very odd. Wait, I just want to say, going back to Bo Durham, I was laughing out loud last night, reading about how the scene toward the end when it was, um, it was in a, in a pool hall where the uh, crash and new Kevin, <laughs> It was it was filmed as a whorehouse originally, correct? You actually filmed the scene as a whorehouse, correct? Yes. As you're doing it, are you like, this is not going to be good? As we were shooting it, I'm thinking this is a really stupid idea. You put the guy in a whorehouse, and so you've got to romanticize the whorehouse a little bit. Not suddenly it feels like a movie moment. And the whole movie, I'm trying to flip the tropes of sports movies. Plus, even though he's playing the piano there, everybody's going to say, this is supposed to be a sexy love story, and he's hanging out in a whorehouse. This isn't right. So uh, how I got that cut out was a little bit manipulative on my part, and I got the chance to reshoot it. And as you know from the book, I, the studio said, what will you do? And I said, here. And I gave him the same scene that I'd shot, except it was now set in a pool hall. There's no dialogue difference. Just the screen directions. Because right. in the movie, in the whorehouse, Nuke came up and said, Hey, Crash, you wanna, I, I got something to tell you. And Crash said, I'm playing. He was playing the piano. Now he's playing pool. Uh, so it, it's one of the most remarkable fixes ever, where all we did was change the location and the entire context of the scene changes. And Kevin's great in the scene. I just love him where he's half drunken and he's howling at the moon and uh, talking about one extra hit a week, one dying quail of you know, uh, ground ball with eyes. And, uh, so I, I'm very fond of the scene. We shot that in the basement of a downtown pool hall in L.A. And it looked just like everything else that had been endured. On this podcast, I usually have sports writers and I ask, who's the worst athlete they've ever dealt with? I'm not going to ask you who the worst athlete you've ever dealt with is. But I will ask, how do you, when you're making a film, deal with an asshole uh, actor? Someone who's in the cast... Maybe he or she is an important member of the cast, but they're a diva or they're a jerk or whatever. Like, are there ways to get past that? Yeah, but the, you, you have to get past it before you start shooting. I mean, you have to do some bonding, I think, spend some time, hear, hear their concerns. Uh, I get along with actors great, and some of them have reputations of being difficult, and I they love me and I love them. I think that... Actors are insecure. The bigger the star, the bigger the insecurity. I promise you that. And they want to know they're in good hands. They want to know they'll be listened to. They want to know you've got their back. They want to sometimes want you to get in their face and say, oh, we're doing it this way. So 
They want somebody really whose hand is on the rudder firmly. Where their insecurity flares up is when the, the, show, the movie feels that nobody's really in charge and the production's disorganized and, and, the, uh, you know, the, and the director's unsure. Well, I, I don't check any of those boxes. So, and that's my athletic background, to be perfectly honest, because, yeah. you know, you know there, there's, why are some coaches and managers in sports players like to play for and others they don't? That's an interesting phenomenon because it's bigger than X's and O's. But it's, it's true. And um, so you've got to be a player's manager, but you also have to have a little bit of the, you know, John McGraw in you too, or Weaver in you too. All the guys, well, and the, I was in the Oriole organization and I never, you know, and so I played with and against a lot of those Oriole players in spring training and exhibition games and stuff. They're all fabulous guys and really classy guys, you know, the Boog Powells and all those. Brooks Robinson, Frank, very classy. And um, they all said, they all loved Earl Weaver. Now, all, and they said, look, he throws fits, but he's not venal. He's, they didn't use that word. He's not mean. They said, he barks at you, and he's always right for when he barks at you about a, a middle error or something, but then it's over. He doesn't remember it the next day. I mean, it was a point he was making to you. He doesn't hold grudges. The other thing about Earl Weaver, make sure it's not personal if I'm barking. God damn it, get over here. Where's the camera? Where the this, where the that? And where the, yep, you're late over here. It's not me. It's not me. Right. You're right. I'm right. They're late. <laughs> right. They're never late on my sets anyway. But the other thing that Earl Weaver played his whole lineup, this is something I'd never thought of. Although in the 66 World Series, you know, only four pitchers pitched, I think. That was when they swept the Dodgers. And I think it was three starters and one reliever in four games. Let me ask a final question, because I think about this a lot in, in writing as I get older. You're in your 70s. It's a business. I mean, the meetings I've gone on, it's a lot. I'm 50, and it's a lot of guys younger than me who are doing, you know, and you can see the kind of bullshit and the, the little cockiness and the arrogance and making references that I don't always get anymore, you know, and blah, 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 blah. Does it get harder to sustain uh, with age? Do you, do you ever feel, for lack of a better word, do you ever feel obsolete when you're in a meeting in Hollywood or that they've, you know, they, they just see you and think, ah, oh, yesterday, don't need this anymore. Or are there ways to defy that? First of all, yes, every time. I feel that because <laughs> I'm pitching to people half my age. I've got, I've got two kids younger from my first, uh, from my current and long time marriage, and two older and grand grandkids. I mean, so I'm pitching to my grandchildren sometimes, you know, and uh, uh, and they don't know quite who I am, and they've not seen my movies, many of them, but they also haven't seen The Godfather, much yeah. less. Billy, Sunset Boulevard and Billy Wilder and Preston Sturges and they haven't seen anything. Laurel and Hardy, Buster Keaton. I mean, so that is a fact of life, which is why I choose now at this point in my life and career, and I hope it continues, to, to do things like the Ted Williams Richard Kramer book on my own and in my time, in my way, in my speed, so I don't have to deal with any of those people. Because if I could walk in the door with Costner and 
somebody, Paul Giamatti, I've got it. Right. Um, other cases, I have to deal with them, and that's just a fact of life. But uh, yes, it's it's a it's a very very odd business now. It's very corporate. Didn't used to be so corporate. Um, it's you know algorithms. My movies would never get made if I relied on algorithms. Yeah. So uh, I don't even know what algorithms are, but uh, I know that they're wrong a lot. Uh, and algorithms are all about repeating patterns that already exist. They're not about creating new patterns like Bull Durham. I just think you make great movies. And I just want to say, I, I love this book, but I don't love it for the reason I thought I was going to love it. I thought I was going to love it because it would be all these old, warm, heartwarming stories. And I love it more because it's this honest, actual, hardcore look at the shit show that can be making a movie and that you were able to make this magical piece of enduring film out of a hellscape. I mean, it's one of the most amazing things ever. And uh, I love it. I love it. Thank you. It's, it's a, I'm amazed we haven't met over the years because uh, you dropped at least 10 names who I know, including David Hershey, my first editor, my first book editor, Lee Montville, my former colleague at SI on and on. Yeah. So there's a lot of crossover there. Yeah. Just, uh, I just, <clears throat> had drinks with Hershey getting his insight on that meeting that came up with the Ted Williams name and, and, and with Kramer, I know we got him on the show, but it was Kramer. My idea that Kramer might be down there blowing through his expense account, asking for more money. He said, yeah, every week he'd call and ask for money. He would always like go 10 times over the expense account. Yeah. We'd all get exasperated. And then he'd turn in some work of art. So, uh, he wouldn't people. I feel like editors today wouldn't understand him. Like, I think the stuff he turned in was so different. Like even that DiMaggio book, that DiMaggio book, I could try. I feel like you read most stuff. You're like, I could kind of do that. And I can kind of, I couldn't do that. I don't even understand how he did it. It's a preposterous book. It's so freaking good. So, yeah. I'm, I'm with you on Kramer all the way. Yeah. Uh, well, Ron, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's an honor meeting you. Appreciate it. One day we'll meet in person and not virtual. We'll have a beer. That'd be great. That'd be great. I want to thank today's guest, Ron Shelton, for joining me on True Riders Singing Yang. You can buy The Church of Baseball, The Making of Bull Durham, Home Runs, Bad Calls, Crazy Fights, Big Swings and a Hit, wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money for doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.